A good Sunday evening, everyone, and welcome back to Sip's Basement, only on True Radio Network. It's a hanging out with you tonight, and I've got a packed show for you to listen to. First up, I'm going to do my top countdown of my top 10 favorite Stephen King adaptations from story to screen. Secondly, we'll be going into my Twitter inbox for more Q&A. Thirdly, I'm going to give you a quick stimulus update. Then last of all, an update on the Durham probe, which will likely end up having major shockwaves on a bipartisan scale. So, as Meredith Vickers said in her briefing in Prometheus, on with the show. You know, Stephen King has had a lot of success a lot of success as a writer and as a novelist, short story writer and a screenwriter. These are my top 10 favorite works that were adapted to the screen. Mind you, the stories are likely different from story to screen, but it is what it is when you're dealing with material where it comes to certain material. So here we go. We start off with number 10 and coming in at number 10, is Needful Things from 1990. The book came out in 91. It was turned into a 93 film. This was based on the first book after Stephen King completed drug and, re- drug and alcohol rehabilitation. In this thriller, a storekeeper who's from Akron, Ohio, arrives in Castle Rock, Maine, a fictitious town, and has payments in his shop that involve both cash and small favors that can escalate into violence. The primary goal for the shop owner is to turn, for Leland Gaunt is to turn the town against each other and then it's later discovered who Leland Gaunt actually is. Now I caught this film in the theaters and came out in late August and late August usually is just a dumping ground for movies. And like a lot of like a lot of books that are based on novels that I've read, it took me a while to get on board with the film, but now I kind of like this one. It's a personal favorite. All in all, it's an enjoyable watch, but also understand that the book is more suspenseful than the movie itself. Coming in at number nine is the book Cujo from 1981, which was adapted to the screen in 83. Now, this film is not for the claustrophobic or for those who have a fear of dogs. When a St. Bernard chases a wild rabbit and gets bitten on his nose and his head with his head in a cave, a family has a deadly encounter with Cujo, the St. Bernard, while they're trapped in a car. Now, leave aside the ending of the film being different from the book ending, this is a terror-filled ride in both book and on screen. You have solid acting, a steady directing hand, and above all, the suspense is really fast-paced. Coming in at number eight, we're getting into a little bit of the action genre here, sci-fi action genre here, because coming in at number eight is The Running Man, which King wrote under his pseudonym, Richard Bachman and the 87 film that was loosely based on this story. 
Okay, it's about a group of convicted runners sentenced to escape death at the hands of professional killers. Oh, and by the way, this isn't just your typical thing because you're being shown on a game show. And the host of this game show, Damien Killen, Damon Killen, is played by Richard Dawson, who was the first host of Family Feud. Alright, this is where Arnold Schwarzenegger was basically solidifying his 80s action film slate at the th- because at the time he was on a major hot streak and would continue onward for several more years as one of the top action stars of the time. Now the short the book is vastly different from the film, but the movie is entertaining and it delivers. So if you have a chance to watch this film, you need to do so. Coming in at number seven is the 1984 thriller Children of the Corn, based on the 1977 short story, which became an 84 horror sleeper hit. This is set in the fictitious town of Gatlin, Nebraska, where a boy preacher named Isaac gets all the children to kill every adult in town. The film takes a twist when a young couple on a road trip comes in to report a murder and there's little chance of getting out alive. Now, we need to pull over and do a stopgap here. There have been a lot of sequels, as this film has 10 films in this franchise, and since the third film, they've all been direct-to-video, but the original is still solid. If you haven't seen this film, you should just get a few good chills down the spine. Coming in at number 6 is It. Yes, I'm including both chapters 1 and 2 at number 6, because... They do a good job of completing the book itself. Now, the reason why this is on the outside looking in the top five is nostalgia, as the films above it have more nostalgia with me, but there is the possibility of the story of the Losers Club and Gary Maine. You know, their story as teen, as 12-year-olds, then as adults, could creep into the top five in a couple of years. Now, what happens is, one of their own is taken by the monster clown Pennywise. They learn about the clown's supernatural life and his appearance every 27 years. Now, I do like how they did this book into two parts in the theaters, as they did with the ABC 1990 miniseries as well. Both are solid watches, and yeah, when I saw Chapter 1 opening day, in the theaters and Dear God Came On by XTC I caught myself singing along because it's one of my favorite XTC songs oh and please Hollywood do not do a chapter 3 unless it has King's Blessing I know that you're looking for stuff to do but there's no need to go back to the well here you've completed the story as it's meant to be done we arrive into the top 5 with Dolores Claiborne which was a 1992 psychological horror novel that turned into a 95 film starring Kathy Bates and Jennifer Jason Leigh. Now, this is the story between a mother and a daughter with a ton of flashbacks to the past because when the mother has been arrested for the murder of a wealthy, arrested for murder of a wealthy woman for whom she is the maid for, the daughter arrives back home And you get into these flashbacks of what it was like for the daughter growing up. Now, this is a very unsettling film to sit through. And if you've read the book, you know well that the book makes the movie very tame in comparison. The caveat to King's work is that 
You have characters that go through a lot of trauma in their lives. And it's a constant in a lot of his books and in this one as well. It's a solid watch and entry in the top five. Coming in at number four is Christine, the film about a teenager, Arnie Cunningham, who has his life changed as well as those of his family, friends, associates, and enemies when he gets a red and white 1958 Plymouth Ferry named Christine. Well, this car's got a mind of, her, of its own. It's very obsessive and possessive. This film is an insane watch. And it's one of the few films from Stephen King that we discount the language. This film's PG-13 with today's rating standards. It's a lot, It's a fun watch. And the 1983 book is actually as good as the film. Does the book have the film... Does the film keep the suspense in the book? Absolutely. Now, please don't ask me about the 4K restoration of this film because I haven't seen it yet. So, there you go. Number four, Christine. We're into the top three, and at number three is the 1976 classic, Carrie. The film that puts Sissy Spacek on the map. On the map. And she plays the role of Carrie White who's constantly bullied and her peers are unaware of her telekinetic powers. People keep asking me, Sith, who is the inspiration for Tina in Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood? Say no more. Right here. Why do you think we call it Jason versus Carrie in Friday the 13th Lord? That's why we call it that. Okay. The ending is shocking. Okay, but it's well put there, and the build-up is classic is, is a classic as well. I don't like the films that followed this one, the sequel or the remakes, because they really weren't needed sequel or remake-wise at all. But all in all, this is a fun watch. Coming in at number two is The Green Mile, one of the few films that actually brought me to tears in the theater. In this film, a death row corrections officer has a moral dilemma when one, of their pri- when one of the prisoners, a convicted child murderer, has a special healing gift. The book itself was great, and this film is a solid ad- adaptation from book to screen. The film was hailed by critics and audiences alike, and is hands down a better film than a film that's compared to almost, but that almost made the list, and that's Shawshank Redemption. All in all, it's one of King's best non-horror works in a film that is just absolutely top-notch. And coming in at number one, (laughs) come on y'all, it's Misery. As the tagline for the film says, Paul Sheldon used to write for a living, now he's writing to stay alive. This is the book that Stephen King said was a nod to his struggles with drug and alcohol addiction. When Paul Sheldon is in a severe car accident, a fan tries to come with the best of intentions of helping him heal, but when Annie Wilkes finds out that her favorite character is killed off, Paul realizes that Annie's obsession could turn sideways as he's forced to rewrite his novel. It's a tense thriller, the hook ending's awesome as well. It's It's the best adaptation of King's work 
and it's also one of his best novels. Yeah, with all King's works, there are changes from book to screen. This is one just grabs you, and you just run with it for the entire film. And there you go, the top 10 Stephen King adaptations. Now it's time to go into my Twitter inbox for a bit of Q&A. If you have any questions for the Q&A, you can reach me on Twitter at TrueSithDan74. Question 1. Seth, we know you're well-versed in classic alternative music, but who are your top favorite British classic alt bands, not counting The Cure, Adamant, The Smiths, or Depeche Mode, or The Rhythmics, given that you call them commonplace in most lists? Wow. Good question, I do like how the top five, which are common, are left out. So here you go with my top five faves. A is Yazoo. Okay. Now, Vince Clark had left Depeche Mode in early, in like, 80, 81, and formed this group with Alison Moyet, who has a very chilling and elegant voice, and it pairs along great with Vince and his work with synthesizers. They were only together for two years, and Vince would later move on to be in the group Erasure, which is on this list as well. Okay, but Yaz, or Yazoo, they're called Yaz here in the States. Great band. Okay, they reunited in 2008 for a handful of shows that were amazing. So there you go. Um, band number two on this list for me is The Beat, or The English Beat for those who are here in the States. Dave Wakeling and Ranking Roger had a tandem of reggae and two-toned ska that still fucking resonates almost 40 years later. Now, we sadly lost Ranking Roger last year, but both incarnations of the band, the English beat featuring Dave Wakeling and the beat featuring Ranking Jr. still thrive. Hands down, always a favorite. Number three on the list, uh, Susie's in the, Susie and the Banshees. Y'all knew this was coming. Goodness, talk about a band that has a haunting goth, dark wave sound. Susie Sue is well known for her goth overtones, but honestly, this band has a catalog that runs the spectrum of alternative. Yeah, amazing I had a crush on Susie as a preteen, but all in all, I love this band's work. Number four, the aforementioned Erasure. Uh, the synth pop duo that features the aforementioned Vince Clark, who was in Yazoo. This was the band that he was in that had a ton of mainstream success. Now, Andy Bell and Vince Clark have been together as partners in this band for 35 years as business partners. And it's really amazing for bands to stay together that long, especially with all the ideas of, oh, let's do separate projects. Oh, let's do, you know, other things, other projects, and separate bands. These guys have remained together, so that's awesome. And lastly, Joe Jackson. Yeah. Essentially, if you like Elton John, but you want things to be scaled back a bit on the flamboyance gig, then you've got yourself Joe Jackson. I became a big fan of his... When the song Steppin' Out came out in 82 and the video was on heavy rotation on MTV, he's evolved through the years. He went into jazz 
He did a little bit of, you know, post-punk new wave, and he's even done a little classical music as well. But Joe's music always brings me a sense of happiness. So, yeah, there you go, your top five. Question two, Seth, what is the worst film in the last 20 years that you've paid to see in the theaters? Discount Star Trek Nemesis, because we know you walked out of that one. Wow. Okay, well, we can discard Nemesis easily enough because everyone knows I hate that movie. But, you know, The Matrix Revolutions from 2003. You know, Matrix Reloaded was, it was okay, but it was definitely far from as good as the first. But Revolutions was horrible. I walked out, this was the Matrix film where you had 9 a.m. preview showings the day it was released. Went out and saw it and I hated it. I walked out about halfway through, watched it on its HBO premiere, still hated it. So, you know, I don't like this movie. I never will like this movie. And I am not looking forward to The Matrix 4, which is due out in 2022. I'm so done with that. A little bit of a private question here, but a good one. Sith, any words on how you feel about interracial relationships? You know, I'm in full support of them. This isn't the years of segregation, slavery, Jim Crow, etc. We're in 2020, okay? And if you're attracted to someone of another race and you want to explore a relationship with them, have at it and enjoy it. I know of several interracial couples that are very happy, some that are possibly in bloom for the future, and some that have actually produced children that were very much consensual. We're not in the age of Thomas Jefferson as a slave owner. We're in the 21st century. It's time for society to fucking embrace it. Question four, Seth. Thoughts on Jim Cornette's shoot and burial on Joseph P. Ryan. Luck. Look, y'all, Cornette is basically Don Imus of pro wrestling, okay, when it comes to podcasts. He relies heavily on material that he's already used before. For example, his criticism of AEW, he calls it all petite wrestling. He's been calling it that literally from the get-go because he doesn't like all elite wrestling. And he'll bury WWE every single day, okay? But after a while, the use of them, the the words he uses to describe them both are overused. And after a while, it gets bloviated with overtones. And so when he went as far in his burial of, of Joey Ryan and went into his diatribe about Joey finding God all of a sudden, he used the same material that he used about Vince Russo and Shawn Michaels. And what he said about Shawn Michaels and Vince Russo is when mere mortals don't speak to you, you find a higher power. And this is because Cornette is an avowed atheist. I respect his beliefs, but it is what it is. But I still like him every so often, but he's got to get new material. Uh, Question five. Seth. Are you in support of a Paul Feig director's cut of Ghostbusters Answer the Call from 2016? 
Why or why not? Well, if there's indeed a three-hour feed cut, I'm possibly game for it. But again, as I've said before in previous shows, back when we're on Blog Talk, can we please get more depth to the character that Leslie Jones portrayed? Okay, it was stereotypical of African Americans, honestly, and Paul Feig should have done better with his screenwriting partner with this. I don't know if the cut actually exists, or if this was a way to stir the pot because the Snyder Cut is coming on HBO Max next year. But if it exists, I'll gladly give it a watch and see if it improves. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. We just don't know. Uh, Question six. Sith, your views on Hugh Darvish, who starts as a pitcher for your beloved Chicago Cubs. You know... Darvish is inconsistent. I like him, but like other pitchers of recent history for the Cubs, it's a tale of two seasons. He struggles, he catches fire, then he struggles again. You know, it reminds me of Jeff Samarja. Samarja, at the beginning of the year, he he's fired, no problem. He's bringing the smoke. Then he starts to level off quite a bit. Then at the end of the season, he comes back. Take you, Darvish. It's half and half. First half of the season, he's inconsistent as hell. Second half, he catches fire and he's ready to go. It's annoying as hell. He really needs to tighten things up as he's not the second starter right now in the rotation for the Cubs for nothing. Okay? If he could bring things together and be consistent... It'd be Maurice for the Cubs or any other team. Uh, Seth, you're someone who grew up in the 80s, so you can settle the long-lived debate. Tiffany or Debbie Gibson? Why me, people? Good. Oh, Jesus, for fuck's sakes. Look, as much as some people in the malls loved Tiffany, I definitely preferred Debbie Gibson musically. Will always likely be that way, and there isn't much you can change about that. Tiffany was good, but I definitely preferred Debbie Gibson over the two of them. Debbie threw in Jane Wyland of the Go Go's there instead of Tiffany. Much tougher call. Seth, what are your five? What are your most crucial parts of The Godfather? Oh, this is easy, matter of fact, I've got five. The guy asked for four, person asked for four, I'm gonna give you five. Number one. The assassination attempt on Vito Corleone. That's a crucial part. Part two. Uh, number two. Michael killing Captain McCloskey and Salonzo as revenge on the attempt on Vito and the murder of Luca Brazzi. Number three. The killing of Sonny. Number four. Minos meeting, meeting with Vegas with Mo Green as it foreshadows Fredo in part two. And lastly, the baptismal scene of, Car- of Carlo and Connie's son while the heads of the five families are being killed as well as Mo Green. And there you go for Q&A. Now I'm going to give you an update on stimulus and it's got some bad news for it, folks. But let's go ahead and cut to the chase here. Okay, the latest on the second stimulus has a little bit of bad news in it. And I just got to shoot it to you straight. The bad news is that Republicans in the White House are starting the negotiating 
with the CARES Act level of things where it comes to stimulus checks. So if you're an adult dependent, you're single with a tax identification number, or a married couple with at least one person with a tax identification number, at this point, you probably won't qualify for a check with the Republican plan as it stands now. The credit for dependents stay under 17 stays at $500 with the maximum of three. And the even worse part is that the unemployment benefits are a non-starter with the Republican package reportedly as well, with either dropping into $100-$200 a week or 70% of your gross income as well. Then again, this is all just negotiating tactics on both sides. As Democrats passed the HEROES Act in March in the House with the knowledge that a lot of pork was in the bill, that was a non-starter. Also, for a lot of people, here's where things really get ugly. Federal unemployment extension benefits expired the other day, and those who haven't expired yet, they expire this coming Friday. So, in the way it's looking, August the 8th will be the solution for that because you're probably not going to get one this week. Now, I expect both parties to attempt to meet in the middle, but in essence, do not be surprised if the final bill is a complete shit sandwich with people left out or more shit thrown in that has nothing to do with coronavirus relief. If you're an adult dependent or you have a tax identification number or married to someone with a tax identification number, don't hold your breath on getting a check much less both checks. That way, if you do receive a check, it's bonus money in your pocket and you're getting an an unexpected windfall. If you're an emergency worker or you've been working all this time through COVID, don't expect hazard pay. That way, if somehow it goes through, it's more money in your pocket. Okay, and it's a windfall. Now, the GOP Senate plan should be released tomorrow sometime, so next Sunday I will do a deeper dive into this, and hopefully we'll have some sort of daylight next Sunday as well for a final bill. August 3rd through the 8th will be the final straw on this. Hopefully a decent compromise will be attainable. Because what I expect tomorrow when the Republican Senate plan comes out, Senate Republican plan comes out, I expect Pelosi to say, Dead, 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 dead on arrival. No, no, no. But that's what Senate Republicans did to the HEROES Act. So then you're going to have people on both sides come together and negotiate. And I think that's what's going to happen here. Now, finally, before we close the doors, turn out the lights here in the basement tonight, the Durham probe is that indictments are likely going to happen sooner rather than later. Now, I remember a couple of weeks ago me telling listeners that the indictments were probably going to come after the elections. It's possible you could see the indictments now around Labor Day. And let me get this absolutely clear before I dive into this. Rank and file DOJ, as well as rank and file FBI, are definitely people of excellent stature who go out and do their jobs to the fullest expectations. 
and obeying their oaths. It's some of the people at the very, very top levels of both buildings, as well as politicians on both sides, they're in a major panic. Why, you ask? Because this probe is very extensive. There aren't any leaks coming out. And therefore, this is going to be a major explosive issue. This is not what some Trump people are calling for. Revenge for the last three years of Democrat investigations, nor is it what Republicans or Democrats are calling it, Barr and Durham doing a political hit job for Trump on his political enemies. It's very simple, y'all. Things have happened on both sides of the aisle, in upper levels of our government, and in the judicial system. As far as judges go, and consequences are about to take place for the people that have been actually been caught in breaking the law. Now, some people are talking to investigators. Reports are that Peter Strzok has joined a select few in singing to the investigators and ratting out people caught in the web with them. So why has he been talking to and cooperating with investigators for quite a bit of time? Well, he's hoping for a lighter sentence at the end of the day when it comes out to what's, what he's done. I think there's going to be a lot coming to light really soon. And this will affect both sides of the aisle as well as top levels of some government agencies and possibly judges as well. Both parties are in the dark from the RNC and the RNC on down as this is a sealed shut deal without leaks and people are freaking out. There was a letter sent out by a couple of big members of Congress, members of Congress to the FBI earlier going, hey, um, do you have any information at all about what's going on here? People have been told, do not leak anything out of the Durham probe. And the people that signed that letter are freaking out because they know they've got a lot at risk here. And by the way, this goes through multiple states and has nothing to do with party. Now, here's a major problem here for people to start figuring out. This all started well before Trump went down the escalator five years ago. This is why both parties are in a major panic right now, as Durham has a wide open probe that will have major repercussions. My advice is purely simple. Stop thinking that one side or the other is absolute shit. This is no longer about what political party you're aligned with. It is no longer orange man bad, or Bernie is a commie traitor, or Biden is, you know, the root of all evil, or McConnell's a dummy, or McConnell's a crook. Look, it's no longer about that. You're going to see things blow up real soon. And you're going to see that people you thought that were on the level are going to be accused of breaking some serious laws. And people you thought that were crooked to the core are actually on the up and up. This is going to be like the movie Unforgiven, where, with Clint that was directed by Clint Eastwood, where there weren't any good guys, just that some guys were less evil than others. That's what this is going to be. This country has been divided for de- purposely for decades. 
and you've been conditioned to believe that either Republicans are evil or Democrats are evil. These are straw-armed arguments now, and it's time for a major wake-up call. You've been duped into supporting one party or the other your entire voting life. There are currently 179,178 sealed indictments at the moment across all 50 states as we speak. And remember, I keep telling y'all, it's one count, one indictment. So a lot of people could have multiple sealed indictments. This does not end well for either party, and you're likely going to be dismissive when the indictments are unsealed, but there have been investigations in all 50 states. You're likely to be dismissive at first of the end results, but when you see the full scope of what's going on down the road, but I will be here to help you every step of the way as your humble host and correspondent. And now we dim the lights and say good night here in the basement. Now, tomorrow night at 7 p.m., Sports on the Hill podcast returns for their season five debut. They're going to cover the latest in D.C. sports without the politics. The Wizards are in NBA scrimmage mode, getting ready for the NBA seasonal sprint. The Caps, they're getting ready for their NHL sprint and will be returned a couple of, you know, three days ago. So the Nats are in their 60 games sprint as well. And the Washington football team is getting ready for training camp. So join CP3, Robbie G, Paul the Boxing Guy, Anna K, and Dijanae Bland as they have all your DC sports coverage covered without the politics. Sports on the podcast for our night, 7 p.m. Friday night, we'll be recording a new episode of the No Spots podcast. And this week, we have a packed super show in store. Because not only are we doing the week in wrestling, but it's Champ's birthday on Tuesday and next Sunday night marks my one year anniversary on that pod as well. Yeah, oh, and on Anchor, Spotify, and our No Spots Facebook page, you can find the big show that we dropped this morning, that we did this week. That's facebook.com slash Pod. Next week in the basement, I have a countdown, stimulus update, and Q&A. We got you all set to go. Future countdowns will include James Bond, a lot of action franchises, some of my favorite and least favorite songs and shows from the 70s and 80s, and next week from Request, a revisitation of The Nightmare on Elm Street, The Evil Dead, Psycho, and Child's Play franchises, worst to first. Hope everyone has a safe week. As I know, it's very hot outside. I mean, out here, we're in day one of three of a massive heat wave before cold weather comes back, cooler weather comes in. So everyone, please stay safe. I know the heat's definitely on and a very happy tomorrow to you. Peace out. Much love. See you next week.